The welcome sign outside our door says, if you're lucky enough to live at the lake, you're lucky enough. You see, John and I live in War Eagle Cove, right on the shore of Beaver Lake. We absolutely love living there. One reason is our neighbors. One of them's here today. This is Norma One. She's been here before. I'm Norma Two. <laughs> she keeps me in my place. We joke occasionally that we'd have paid extra for our condo if we had known the good neighbors we would get. From the very beginning, they extended hospitality to us newcomers, opening their homes and their hearts to us. Around their tables, we have shared stories and meals and games and laughter and tears. We love our neighbors. And they love us. We can't imagine living anywhere else. But neighbors are not just people who live next door or across the street or up the hill. Jesus taught and modeled the limitless scope of our neighborhood and how we fit into it. That's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of John from the Good Samaritan, uh, from the wedding at Cana to the feeding of the 5,000 to the Last Supper. Pictures of Jesus himself as the exemplar of openness and hospitality to all people. As we've studied the letters of John these past weeks, we've read a lot about living in truth and walking in love. But how do we do that? How do we move from abstract ideas like truth and love to concrete practice in everyday life? That's exactly how we live out Jesus' commandment to love one another in such a way that unbelievers will recognize Jesus in us and want to know him. That's what we're looking at this week as we examine 3 John. 3 John is the Bible's shortest book and it doesn't even name Jesus. Yet it refers often to both truth and love, both in capital letters, which are other names for him, and his heart shines through every line. So let's begin by joining our hearts and our voices in prayer. Will you stand again and pray with me? In unison. Ever-loving God, we bow before you in reverence. You search for us, care for us, and welcome us home. 
we belong to you. Transform us into your likeness and feed us through the generous word as we wait for the Spirit. Make us more and more signs of your hospitality so that your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you. Well, good morning again. I'm Norma Farthing. On behalf of the teaching team, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Grace Church today. Whether you're sitting here, watching the live stream, or hearing the podcast, we are delighted to have you with us. Today we wind up our study of John's letters. All three letters were written late in John's life. By then, John had plenty of time to process who Jesus was and what his own experience with Jesus meant. John writes with authenticity and authority, much like a loving parent writing to his children, encouraging those early Christians to defend and live out the truth of the gospel. Third John continues that theme with more detail and practical advice. The letter is addressed to John's friend Gaius. From Gaius, we learn what a follower of Jesus really looks like. John flat out tells us that for one thing. Then he drives home his point by contrasting Gaius with another disciple named Diotrephes and closing with yet another disciple named Demetrius. All these names are Greek, which suggests that they were either Gentiles or Hellenized Jews, people very unlike John, who was by ethnicity a Jew. Listen for their names as we dig into this text. The pastor, to my good friend Gaius, how truly I love you. We're the best of friends, and I pray for good fortune in everything you do and for your good health, that your everyday affairs prosper as well as your soul. I was most happy when some friends arrived and brought the news that you persist in following the way of truth. Nothing could make me happier than getting reports that my children continue diligently in the way of truth. After greeting Gaius, expressing his love for his friend, and wishing Gaius both physical and spiritual health, John launches into the purpose for his letter. Traveling missionaries are on the way. And John is encouraging Gaius to receive them, support them, and send them off in a manner worthy of God. Verse 5. Dear friend, when you extend hospitality to Christian brothers and sisters, even when they are strangers, you make the faith visible. 
They've made a full report back to the church here, a message about your love. It's good work you're doing helping these travelers on their way. Hospitality worthy of God himself. They set out under the banner of the name and get no help from unbelievers. So they deserve any support we can give them. In providing meals and a, be and a, a bed, we become their companions in spreading the truth. The word John uses for making abstract ideas concrete is hospitality, a common practice in the ancient world. There were no hotels, no Airbnbs, and inns were scarce and notoriously dangerous. People depended on the kindness of strangers. It was common simply to knock on a door and be taken in. Both Christians and pagans did that. But Christian hospitality transcended that of the pagans because of the Christian's relationship with the God who commanded it in the Old Testament, then himself became flesh and modeled it in the New. The New Testament is full of references to hospitality. Be quick, cheerfully, to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, Peter writes. Be generous with the different things God gave you, passing them around so that all get in on it. If words, let it be God's words. If help, let it be God's hearty help. That way, God's bright presence will be evident in everything through Jesus, and he'll get all the credit. 1 Peter 4.9 be ready with a meal or a bed when it's needed, agreed the writer of Hebrews. Why, some people have extended hospitality to angels without even knowing it. And he reminds Timothy, Paul bids the Romans to be given to hospitality, and he reminds Timothy that widows are to be honored if they have a reputation for helping children, strangers, tired Christians, the hurt, and troubled. We could go on. But William Barclay concludes like this. In the early church, the Christian home was, as it should be now, the place of the open door and the loving welcome. In our text, John lists some reasons why. Practicing hospitality makes faith visible, demonstrates love, is good work, reveals and honors God, is indeed God's own work. Practicing hospitality manifests knowledge of and a relationship with God. Reveals truth, capital T, reference to Jesus, who is himself truth. Makes us companions, literally co-workers in ministry with those who receive it. And finally, people deserve it. People deserve it? Whoa! What if they don't? Shouldn't people pull their own weight? 
work, not expect handouts. Y'all, hospitality is not charity. Which is another word for love, by the way, and also commanded in the New Testament. But that's another sermon, right? Neither charity nor hospitality can come with strings attached or with conditions or caveats about self-reliance. The word hospitality comes from the same root that gives us the words hospital and hospice. Hospital, a place to heal, hopefully, and hospice, a place to receive palliative care at the end of life. Christians practice hospitality because people need it. The church is not a hall of fame for the strong, but a hospital for the sick and a hospice for the dying. Above all, we Christians practice hospitality because our Lord told us to. Which is more than reason enough, right? Even if we find it difficult to do so. Hospitality is a learned behavior. A habit. An act of the will. If we wait to feel hospitable, we never will. It is in practicing hospitality that we find, maybe to our own surprise, the joy that comes from partnering with Jesus in the hospitality that he extends for the healing of our broken world. We do it because Jesus is present in the hospitality itself. That's where people will see him, touch him, hear him, and maybe fall in love with him. So where do we start? Gaius provides an example by persistently following the way of truth and diligently continuing in the way of truth. Gaius had an imminent opportunity with those traveling missionaries headed his way. And so do we. As we know already, several of our global workers are coming home soon. Some for respite, some to stay. Our global missions team is mobilizing resources for them, and they need our help. Hospitality makes us partners in ministry with them. More information about that is available in the teaching guide this week, or you can just talk to Sarah or Stephen, right? Verse 9. Earlier, I wrote something along this line to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves being in charge, denigrates my counsel. If I come, you can be sure I'll hold him to account for spreading vicious rumors about us. As if that weren't bad enough, he not only refuses hospitality to traveling Christians, but tries to stop others from welcoming them. Worse yet, instead of inviting them in, he throws them out. Friend, 
don't go along with evil. Model the good. The person who does good does God's work. The person who does evil falsifies God. Doesn't know the first thing about God. I've told you about our wonderful neighbors. We also have this neighbor. Yep. That's a real sign in our neighborhood. We see it all the time. These neighbors are not only rude and inhospitable, they can't spell. <laughs> and they are so unlike our other neighbors that it's hard to believe we all live in the same neighborhood. But we do. I show you this by way of contrast. To help us understand Gaius better, John offers an opposite example in Diotrephes. Two people, poles apart on the spiritual spectrum, and yet both in the same church. We don't know the identity or location of this church, but it had problems. Virtually all of them did. Our view of the New Testament church is sometimes so idyllic that when we encounter church members like Diotrephes, we're not exactly sure what to do with them. They certainly don't exist in our churches, right? Diotrephes comes across as an arrogant control freak and a defiant gospel who resists authority and actively opposes the leadership of Jesus' only surviving apostle, the elderly John. He denigrates my counsel and spreads vicious rumors, John declares. But the thing that has John really riled is the way Diotrephes refuses to practice hospitality. Worse, he tries to stop others, like Gaius, from doing so. And when traveling Christians show up, Diotrephes runs them off. His keep-out sign might look something like this. Those keep-out signs usually say, and this means you, right? Because of this hostile attitude toward receiving strangers, John's not even sure Diotrephes is a Christian. He calls Diotrephes evil, adding that one who practices evil doesn't know the first thing about God. And John calls him out on it, too. To paraphrase that famous line from a few grid men, Diotrephes just messed with the wrong apostle. Seriously, don't we sometimes underestimate John? The beloved apostle, the writer whose primary theme is love, the one with his head on Jesus' chest, the one to whom Jesus entrusted his mother, the one pictured in Christian art always as androgynous or feminized. We forget 
that Jesus called John and his brother James uh, sons of thunder. That both had fiery tempers and short fuses. That it was those same brothers who wanted to burn down a Samaritan village which refused hospitality to Jesus and his traveling companions. That it was James and John who demanded seats of honor when Jesus established his kingdom. John was definitely not a wimp. He was the apostle Diotrephes didn't want to mess with. I'll challenge him to his face when I visit, John vowed, and we can be sure he did. It's crucial to note here that this confrontation is not about doctrine. No doubt Diotrephes believed all the right things. This conflict was about practice. Did you notice all the action verbs in our reading? John's emphasis is on doing what we do rather than what we say or think. It's not about orthodoxy or doctrine or getting our theology right. Rather, it's about how we act on what we already know. How we respond to truth when we hear it. That's where we are right now. Do good, John reminds us. Model good. Literally, mimic good. Not uh, not to do good is to do evil. Y'all know what people call a person who does good? A do-gooder. Let people call you that. It's a badge of honor. Stand up to these modern diatrophies. Little children, we must stop expressing love merely by our words and manner of speech. We must love in action and in truth. John wrote that in his first letter. The best way to do good is to practice biblical hospitality. And not just with friends and family, but with people who don't think like us or believe like us or look like us or smell like us. Historically, hospitality is rooted in table fellowship, in sharing a meal. It's one of the ways we still practice hospitality. But in that culture, people were segregated, especially around the table. Races, genders, professions, nationalities, religions, you name it. There were rules about who could eat with whom and under what conditions. Then along came Jesus. Jesus ate with everybody. Tax collectors, laborers, fishermen, women, prostitutes, rich, poor, young, old, people who didn't wash their hands. Jesus didn't discriminate. Anybody could sit at his table. Religious leaders criticized him for it too. Their standard accusation against him was, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Well, they got that right. He extended his hospitality to everybody. That means me, 
this means you. Years ago, I had a family member whose home I would not visit. It was filthy. She and her husband had terrible reputations. I won't list their sins, but they were numerous and vile. Then one Christmas, another relative told me that this couple had got religion. Indeed, something had changed them. What happened, I asked. It was our neighbors, they smiled. This family moved in next door and began speaking to us. Then they invited us for coffee, then sandwiches, then dinner and board games, and they came to our house. Didn't seem to matter to them that it was dirty and smelled bad. They became our friends. And when they told us Jesus loved us, we believed it because they did. Hospitality works like that. Hospitality is transformative. It is a form, maybe the best form, of evangelism. Those who welcome personally, who are welcomed personally to Jesus' table, are changed forever. But this kind of hospitality requires face-to-face, out-of-your-comfort-zone, dirt-under-your-fingernails connection with people. Real people, not people in the abstract. Paying taxes for government-funded social programs or donating to charities or food pantries, even Christian ones. That's good. Don't stop. But it's not enough. Jesus calls us to kingdom building in an intensely personal way. His sign says... Join me in extending personality to those who need it most, and this means you. When I rejected my relatives, I forgot that. Although I understood the principles of biblical hospitality, even taught them and wrote about them and called myself practicing them, I too embraced a spirit of diatrophies. Do you? If you don't have a hospitable spirit, ask God to give you one. Then take tiny steps towards strengthening it and don't make excuses. My place is too small. It's not clean. I can't cook or my dishes don't match. Biblical hospitality is not about preening or perfection. In 3 John, hospitality is both commended and commanded. And in diatrophies, inhospitality is explicitly condemned. We only need to be more intentional and obedient. Hospitality is, after all, the work of God. And God's work is done through us. Just do it. These same principles also work if it's easier for you to give hospitality 
than to accept it. Those itinerant preachers had to be willing to take, to accept what Gaius offered them, namely hospitality. Interestingly, the Greek word translated host is also translated guest. Sometimes God calls us to be the host. Other times he calls us to be the guest. Either way, the sign says this means you. When you're invited, go. Reciprocate. When you're not invited, invite. Make space for all types of hospitality. Informal meals prepped, prepared, eaten, and cleaned up together. Walks, runs, hikes, workout, bike rides, arts, crafts, theater, simply hanging out. Chatting over coffee or tea or a glass of wine. Praying together. The point is to be intentional and committed to becoming a person marked by hospitality, both when you extend it and when you receive it. Verse 12. Everyone has a good word for Demetrius. The truth itself stands up for Demetrius. We concur, and you know we don't hand out endorsements lightly. I have a lot more things to tell you, but I'd rather not use pen and ink. I hope to be there soon in person and have a heart-to-heart -heart talk. Peace to you. The friends here say hello. Greet our friends there by name. Finally, John adds Demetrius to the mix. We don't know who Demetrius was or why John included him, except that he's another good example of what it means to follow Jesus. It may be that Demetrius is one of these traveling missionaries, or perhaps even their front man, since this letter seems to be a recommendation for him as well as an encouragement to welcome strangers. Possibly he carried the letter to Gaius to ensure that Demetrius didn't intercept, uh, Diotrephes didn't intercept it. We don't know. But we do know that Di uh, Demetrius had a stellar reputation. Everyone spoke well of him. Truth itself, or truth himself, endorsed him. And John, who didn't hand out compliments easily, concurred. That sets the bar pretty high for us, doesn't it? But God's not very patient with excuses. We can't get away with them when he commands us to practice hospitality. Or when he sets before us an example like Demetrius. And this morning, I set before you the example of Anthony Bourdain, whose death this week I cannot ignore in the light of 3 John. As John and I watched CNN's tribute to their friend and colleague Friday night, it became clear that Bourdain's show, Parts Unknown, was not about food or travel. It was about people and about Bourdain's curiosity and openness to their stories and customs and cultures. And yes, strange food. He could sit down with anybody anywhere and discuss anything if they were eating. 
Anytime you have a group of people doing a story on television, Don Lemon said, we sit and argue and have heated discussions. All you have to do is interject a table with food and wine and we become more civilized. That's what Tony did best. Unquote. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus does best. As we prepare for communion, giving, and prayer, let me leave you with these thoughts. Jesus opens his table to everyone. If you're wondering whether you're welcome here, you are. Jesus has no keep out sign. Jesus says, welcome to my table, and this means you. Number two, this is a celebration. We call it celebrating communion. Jesus is giving a banquet for his bride, and this too means you. Those itinerant missionaries set out under the banner of the name and relied on the hospitality of fellow Christians for support. We too live under the banner of Christ's love. And he has prepared this table to remind us of that. He has brought me to the banquet hall, declares the joyful bride in the Song of Solomon, and his banner over me is love. Just as the bride in that song is thankful for the invitation to the table with an overarching sense of love, the bride of Christ feels joy and imitates the hospitality of her bridegroom. Three. At this table, Jesus is the hospice. Remember that? Greek word. Greek root for both, for hospitality, but it means both host and guest. Jesus is the host of this table. He's also the guest in our worship and in our hearts. Just like Jesus, we're also the hospice, both the guest at his table and the host who welcome him into our hearts, our homes, and our lives. So listen carefully to the invitation of our gracious host, recorded in Revelation 3.20. Look, I am standing at the door and knocking if any hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to be with them and will have dinner with them and they will have dinner with me. And this means you. Right here. Right now. Thank you for being here.